I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Well, pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for the start of our week, and we thank you that you know that we need to be in your presence. Father, we think we know what we need, and so we make a lot of choices. Um, and when we make those choices, sometimes it's really obvious that we don't know what we need. And one of those choices, Father, is how infrequently we come to you. We confess that we want to be independent, that we want to be self-sufficient, that we want to be in control and we want to govern our own lives. But Father, I am so thankful that you have spoken into this world and that you have made your presence known. Father, I'm thankful that you didn't stop there. I'm thankful that you sent Jesus. Lord Jesus, when we consider you, we have to admit that in theory and in theology, we can grasp who you are. But when we look at the women and the men sitting next to us in their flesh and blood, and we consider your flesh and blood, that's when we really start to lose touch and lose grip. Lord Jesus, we confess that one day we will live by sight and not by faith, and we look forward to that day because it's hard for us to live by faith, and you know it. I thank you so much, Jesus, that you live this life and that you um, know our weaknesses inside and out. Because, Father, honestly, it's our weaknesses that cause us to want to hide. Believing that if you knew us and if others knew us, they would want nothing to do with us. But we praise you that your word speaks another truth. Holy Spirit, we come before you and we ask you to do what we cannot do. What we cannot gin up the ability to contemplate Christ on our own, or to see Him rightly. And so we're really thankful for the Bible. But we even need You, Holy Spirit, to put Christ before us so that as we gaze upon Him, as we abide in Him, as we come and eat at the table that He has given us, we would eat and drink with faith. And that has to come from You. 
Father, we feel weak as we draw near to you. And we praise you that you know us. We praise you that this is the truth. You have said that we human beings are like the flowers of the field. Um, that the wind blows over us and we're gone, but that your word stands forever. Father, I pray for the women and the men who are here today and for whom holding on to faith seems nigh unto impossible. Father, sometimes it's bitterness, sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's disappointment, sometimes it's fear, and sometimes it's such a mixture of those we can't even suss our own hearts out. But you know, and you know what we need to hear. And Father, I praise you that you're at work in the church. We look at each other and we wonder, is change possible? Father, we see the little ones and we believe they're going to change. But the older we get, we wonder, are we going to change? And when we look at each other, in our later years, we often say of each other, you're not going to change. And Father, please forgive us. Because you, as Ruth prayed, said that you were sanctifying us. And so we pray that you would do more of that today. Father, meet us in our tears and in our joy. Meet us in our anxieties. Father, meet us today. Show us Jesus and change us. We need you. And it's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, this passage is easy today. It is easy because there is an imperative in the passage. And whenever you read a passage and there's an imperative in it, it's pretty easy to know that that's the focus of a sermon, right? Love one another. It's right in front of your face, isn't it? I want to say that since chapter 13, and you really ought to open your Bibles, uh, since chapter 13, uh, we have been in what is called the upper room. I have no idea where the upper room is, and when you go look on it in a map uh, in the city of Jerusalem, the upper room is always there with a question mark next to it. Nobody knows where this upper room was. But we know that at some point in this narrative of John, they left the upper room and they went into the garden and Jesus was praying there, and that's where he was betrayed, right? So this upper room is where we are. It has begun in chapter 13. We're not going to get out of the upper room until we get through chapter 17. At the end of chapter 15, Jesus says, arise, let's go. But then he starts talking right away again. And after chapter 17, it says that they got up, they left, and they went across the valley and into the garden, right? This command that we love one another is the focal point of this entire section of Scripture. You guys will remember what happens in chapter 13, the foot washing, right? Jesus, knowing that his end has come, loved his disciples to the end. He took off his clothes and he wrapped himself in a towel and then he went disciple by disciple and washed their feet, right? This foot washing. Jesus said, now listen, where I am going, you can't come. And he said, because of that, I'm going to give you a new commandment. But the disciples were confused. If you go back and read chapters 13 and 14, they say, wait a minute, why can't we come with you? And in fact, Peter says, I'll tell you what, Jesus, 
I'm going to follow you wherever you go. In fact, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And you know where the story goes from there. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, actually before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times, right? And then Jesus says, look, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And, and, and he says, and then I'll come and get you so that you can be with me and with the Father. And then the disciples go, well, show us the Father. And Jesus goes, no, wait a minute. How long have I been with you and, and, and you don't know the Father? I, I am the Father and the Father is in me. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to send you the Spirit so that you will abide in me. And that's what Nathan talked about last week, right? But I want you to notice that Jesus starts up again with this new command. Right after chapter 13, he comes again and he says, this is my commandment to you. In verse 12, this is my commandment. Jesus is going back to the main point of what he's trying to communicate this night. And Jesus says to them, love one another. Now you kind of stop and you go, wow, everybody can get behind this, right? Everybody knows it. Those of us who are of a certain age and some of us who are of a certain age plus a few ages uh, will remember the young bloods in the 60s who saying, come on, everybody, come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together and what? Love one another, right? Love one another right now. The problem is that's not what Jesus said. If we posted a sign in the yard and all it said is love one another, no one would have a problem with that sign, would they? But when we actually read the words of Jesus, this is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you, then suddenly we begin to wonder, wait a minute, what is this about? Love one another as I have loved you. Now it begs to ask the question, the first question of the evening, right? How did he love us? <laughs> Jesus knew that you were going to ask the question because he answers the question in verse 13, doesn't he? Verse 13 looks and he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. How do you think Peter heard that that night? Because Peter had not yet denied Christ. Remember, this happened. This conversation took place. It took place between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. Peter had just looked at Jesus and he says, Jesus, I am going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus goes, no, you're not. You're not. You're going to deny me. And then he says, look, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Don't you think Peter heard that and goes, I'm telling you, I'm going to prove him wrong. Tomorrow morning, T minus 12 hours, I can make it 12 hours. I'm going to lay down my life for him. I'm not denying him. We know that John has more to say about this kind of love we know that when John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John wrote this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us 
And so we ought to lay down our lives for each other. Now again, those of us from a certain age group loved a certain movie called Forrest Gump. I'm not going to ask you if you love Forrest Gump, but I'm going to confess to you that I absolutely love Forrest Gump. And I think about it every time I see somebody stand like this, right? And what does Forrest Gump say to Jenny? I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. The premise of the movie, for those of you who are younger or for those of you who are more cultured than I am, is that this most improbable human being, Forrest Gump, exists and does the most improbable things in his life, and he loves by laying down his life for this woman named Jenny. Some might look at that movie and with a little bit of, you know, doubt, let's just call it that, go, yeah, right. In fact, sort of the whole movie is set up to be unrealistic, right? It's completely unrealistic. But there's this nod to, if you could ever find somebody that loved that way, maybe you ought to take them. Maybe you ought to accept it. Here's something interesting, though. Jesus doesn't suggest that we love this way. Jesus commands it. That we would lay down our lives for each other. Christ the King Church Newton, how are we doing How are we doing laying down our lives for one another? For whom are you laying down your life? Look around this room. For whom? Who among us could stand up in this room and say, I am laying down my life for them and walk to them? Say, I'm laying down my life for you. And they would say, yeah, you are. For us to consider Jesus' words sincerely is to consider them. You know, I often ask people when they visit Christ the King Church Newton, have you been able to worship? I hope that you have been able to worship here. I hope that the majority of you who have worshipped at Christ the King Newton Someone has come to you and asked, have you been able to worship? But there's another question that we ought to ask of the church, and we ought to ask of ourselves in the church. Is this a place where I can lay down my life for the other? Many of you know that on Monday, my niece was diagnosed with leukemia. My mom and dad happened to be in Atlanta trying to meet up with Mac, who was flying in from Boston. My mother immediately jumped in the airport in Atlanta and flew to Charlotte, which is where my sister and her daughter live. And then my dad dumped all of Mac's stuff off, maybe by the side of the road. I have no idea if Mac ever got it. 
but he immediately went home, packed bags. Oh, well, there was a stop at Walmart buying my mother pajamas. Can you imagine what those were like? And they finally get to Charlotte. And from Monday through Friday, they're there with the older girls while Ruthie, from Monday morning to Monday afternoon into the ICU, goes into chemotherapy by Wednesday. I called my mom and dad on Friday, and I said, hey, how are you doing? Where are you? And they said, we're on the road. We're leaving. And I was like, oh, really? What's going on? And my mom and dad said, you wouldn't believe it. There's not a need that Carrie and Travis have that that church hasn't come around. Not one. Everything from straightening up the yard to being the person who is going to plan play dates for Isabel and there being another person who's going to plan play dates for Natalie and another person who is going to plan a spa day for Ruthie who is stuck in the hospital, no needs were unmet. And my mom and dad said it was amazing. We drove away, praising God. And I thought to myself, that is an amazing testimony for a church. That's an amazing testimony. Jesus washed dirty feet. How often do feet get dirty? Feet get dirty every day. We cannot die for each other's sins. When Jesus says, love one another even as I have loved you, we are not called to die for each other's sins. It is not possible. The reason that Jesus Christ could do it is because He is 100% God and 100% man. And His perfect life paid the penalty for our sins. But we can humbly lay down our lives for each other and wash each other's feet regularly. Every day, dirt. My question for us as a church is have we modernized that away? Have we so imbibed our culture that our individualism, our refusal to connect with each other, our ability to be gone anytime we want to be gone and to choose to be gone anytime we want to be gone, does it keep us from laying down our lives for each other? Jesus asked us to consider two things. He asked us to consider the concept of friendship and also to ask whose initiative that friendship was. Look, it goes like this in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So I want you to think about that. 
I want us to think about that for a minute. Our friendship with Jesus in verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Well, the the if is problematic, isn't it? The if stops us for a second and goes, hmm, what does that mean? I'm Jesus' friend if I obey and if I love by laying my life down. Does this mean that I'm his friendship if I earn it by laying my life down? Or does it mean that this obedience of laying down my life is what characterizes me being a friend of Jesus? I believe that it's the latter and not the former. I believe that what Jesus is saying is if you are my friends, you will love one another. You will do what I command. It's what characterizes those who are friends with Jesus. Let's think about that for just a minute because Jesus goes on and He talks about it. He says right there in verse 15, He says to them, I no longer, if you obey my commands, he says, I no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. And right there, we've got a little bit of a problem, don't we? The problem is this. We don't think obedience characterizes friendship. It may be really weird if I were to say, hey, Dan, you're my good buddy. Uh, You need to live your life the way I tell you to live your life. Dan would stop and go, look, I love you, Bradley, sometimes, but that's crazy. I'm not going to obey you. We think about friendship that way. We think about friendship rather with shared appreciation. Thus, when somebody even knows something better in our life and they command something to us, we often view it as a suggestion. And because we're confused about friendship in this context, it's easy enough for us to think that Jesus is suggesting that we ought to love one another by laying our lives down for each other. But that's not how Jesus characterizes friendship. Number one, Jesus isn't in the same relationship to any of us the way that Dan and I are in the same relationship, right? Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is very God of very God, light of light, begotten, not made, of the same substance with the Father. Jesus says that friendship, rather, has to do with those who are charged to obey without knowledge versus those who are charged to obey with knowledge. Those who are given knowledge of who Jesus is and what the Father is doing, that's who Jesus says are friends. So, for instance, you've got Moses, you've got Abraham, these two individuals in the Old Testament who are called friends of God. One commentator pointed out, I thought it was really cool, no one in Scripture says God is my friend. No one. Not even the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave to God. God, in His own prerogative, calls Moses and Abraham in the Old Testament His friends. Jesus in his prerogative, calls us his friends. And he says, it is because I have showed you and told you what I'm doing. Jesus spoke the truth. He said, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever would believe in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus reveals to us that God's action in the world through Christ is that he is reconciling all things to himself. Through Jesus and his word, we understand that God has come to save us from our sins by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross for our sins. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? This is the word that is heard and it is received. Jesus says, those are my friends who know what the Father is doing, that we have received it by grace through faith, and that faith is a gift. Therefore, Jesus cannot mean that you are my friend once you lay down your life. He has to mean to understand what it means that you are my friend means that you will lay down your life for others. Now, this is really tough. This is really hard when everything in the church has gone wrong. This is hard when the place where we are called to lay our lives down for one another is where we are most taken advantage of. When everything blows up, the temptation in our heart says, is it worth it? I have a life to live. Is is this really worth it? Well, what do you know of what Jesus has said? Jesus has commanded us to love one another just as I have loved you. What if the phrase of our church were, lay it down, lay it down, lay it down for one another? Jesus doesn't just consider friendship, but in the end... He asked the very hard question, whose initiative was this friendship in the first place? I want to ask you this last question. Did you find something in Jesus that made your life work? Like Jenny with Forrest Gump, right? Jenny finally came to the realization when she was away that this man really does love me. And even though he's not a smart man, I'm going to accept his love. Did you find something in Christ that made your life work and therefore you said, I'm following him? Jesus wants to debunk that idea once and for all for any of us that might think that way. For any who, like Peter, might say, I don't need your example, Jesus, of laying down your life for me. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Right? You begin to see how out of place Peter's mind was. Jesus says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. 
Two things. Jesus says, I chose you. I want you to stop for a minute and ask yourself, what is your relationship with Christ like? I want you to know if you have been moved by God's free grace to profess faith in Him, you need to hear that God chose you. That He set His affection on you. That He delights in you. That you are the apple of His eye. You are what His eye desires. He loves you. If you're sitting in this room today and you said, I've never professed faith, do you think God could love me that way? I say, absolutely. Because just like the offertory that Nathan's saying, it is the free offer of the gospel to any of you that God loves you. John 3, 16, he so loved the world. But that's not all that Jesus says. He says that. He says, I chose you. But he also says, I appointed you to go and bear fruit. This is the last thing that I want you to see. Guess what that word appointed is? I kind of scratched my head all week and I thought, you know, that's kind of a weird word. I wonder what that word is. Guess what the same word is? It's the same word that, Jesus, that Peter used when he said, I'm going to lay down my life for you, Jesus. It's the same word that Jesus said in verse 13, that the one who has greater love is the one who lays down his life for his friends. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I chose you and I appointed you? Do you want to know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I chose you and I'm the one who laid you down to love each other. I laid you down. My purpose with your life is that you would give it away for each other, that you would love this way, and in so doing, to bear fruit that will abide. And what's really interesting is that every time in the New Testament where someone is appointed, Acts 13, 1 Timothy 1, it's always to the end that others would come to faith in Jesus. Well, how's the new command given to us in John 13? Just as I have loved you, you should love one another so that the world will believe that you're my disciples. And here Jesus says that you would love each other by laying down your lives so that you would bear fruit of converts who would come to faith. Our spiritual lives are going to be frustrated, you all, until we relent to the reality that Jesus has called us to lay down our lives for each other. Our spiritual lives are going to be frustrated until we relent to that reality. Well, how do we change? How do we become women and men who lay down our lives for each other daily? Well, Jesus tells us 
right there. In verse 16, I didn't, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you hear the connection from last week? If we abide in Christ and we ask anything in his name, verse 7 of the same chapter, he will give it to us. How do we change? We ask for it. We ask for it. God, would you give us such an apprehension of Jesus' love for us? Would we abide in his love in such a way that we would lay down our lives for each other? And that that would be what characterizes this body. You know how a cucumber becomes a pickle? You soak in pickle juice. That's what you do. You get in pickle juice, and you sit there long enough until the cucumber becomes a pickle. Listen, this table is the pickle juice of the gospel. This is the place where we come and we soak in the love of Christ. Because it's not Jesus' suggestion that we would love one another by laying our lives down for each other. It is his command. And we have a hard enough time saying we're not going to go on vacation because it might encourage somebody else for me to not do something. We have a hard enough time of just participating with each other because it might be an encouragement to somebody else, much less lay down our lives. What do we need? Well, it's right here. Don't worry. You're about to go there. You go there every week. We go there every week because this is what we need to soak in the love of God for us in Christ. This is why Jesus says, every time you gather, soak in this gospel. I gave my life for you. Now you give your lives for each other so that a watching world may believe that you're my disciples. Will you come with me? Can we go and soak in the gospel a little bit more? I think we need it. I know I need it. I believe it's what you need. Let's pray.